Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the Out of the Cave podcast with Lisa Schlossberg. This is me, Lisa Schlossberg, and I am really appreciative of you being here and listening to this podcast. Today's interview is with a client of mine, Emily, who did some one-on-one coaching with me, and I'm really excited to share this one with you because as the title suggests, this is really a story of what it means to live in the cave and then live out of the cave and just coming into a place of awareness and truth and freedom. And I think Emily does a really beautiful job of just sharing some incredible wisdom and insight about this journey. And I'm really glad, I'm really grateful that we have this interview and I'm really excited to share it with you. So without further ado, please enjoy. Hello again. (laughs) Hi. I am here today with one of my loves. This is Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi, Lisa. (laughs) Emily and I did um, months of one-on-one coaching together. And Emily is here to share not only her story, but what I know is going to be an endless amount of wisdom with all of you. So um, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to see you again. I'm so excited to be on. This is so fun. So I Emily feel like a just, celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I mean, hey. yeah. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit just about who you are. Yeah. Um, so I'm Emily, as Lisa said, um, I live in Jersey city, just outside Manhattan, um, with my boyfriend and my dog. And I also have a horse, which I'm sure we will get into weird horse girl. Um, and I am 27 years old and I work in social media. So, um, that's kind of the, the me. Cool. Thank you. All right. So I was telling Emily before this that I want to follow the same kind of trajectory in terms of the questions that I've been asking, because it's been really interesting for me and hopefully for everyone who's listening to this to hear about our different stories from the beginning. So we didn't have this relationship with food that we have as adults off the bat. So my question for you right now is if you think about the very beginning, so the first few years of your life, ages zero to five, zero to 10 ish, what do you remember, if anything, about your relationship with food, eating, your weight and your body? Yeah, I think I said this on like our first intro call, but uh, I don't think I remember a time where I wasn't concerned with the way that my body looked the food that I was eating or not eating um, and comparing myself to everyone around me, um, all my friends, the other people in my class. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about what you remember, if anything, from zero to five, zero to 10 years old in terms of the relationship that you had with food and eating and your body and your weight at that time? Yeah. So I feel like I don't remember a time where I was not concerned with the way that my body looked or the food that I was eating or not eating or comparing myself to my friends or my classmates. Um, Maybe younger than five, I didn't think about it, but I would say pretty soon after I started school, it was something that 
I noticed pretty immediately or was being talked about around me. Um, so I really, I, I can't even imagine a world where I wasn't thinking those things. Um, so I think that was really um, just something that I thought was normal. Um, it wasn't something that I thought was, at least at first, was something that I should be thinking about more or that I could change or, um, you know, maybe that I shouldn't be thinking that. I think I just thought that's what everyone was going through, even though it probably was not for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, definitely in the start of elementary school through, you know, going into middle school, that that time obviously is really hard. And I think that's probably when it was the most top of mind, like, oh, I really understand what's happening here, that I don't like my body, that I think I'm larger than the other kids, that I, maybe I think I'm eating more, I'm eating the wrong things. And then, you know, family starts pitching in their thoughts and all of that. So I think that kind of early stages were um, just really, it really just felt like part of who I was. It wasn't something that came up one day. It was something that was always with me. Yeah. And that's something, thank you for sharing that. That's something that you and I have in common that mm -hmm. when I think about my own childhood, like the way that I say it is as soon as I could feed myself, I was eating too much. Like as soon as there was any awareness of body shape, size, weight, food, eating, any of those things, it was like, oh yeah, this has always been on my radar. Like mm -hmm. this is just always, always, always been a thing. And I don't even know what it feels like to not have it be a thing. Yeah. So I'm just curious because I think it's so interesting when you know that it was on your radar. If you think about what do you remember, and maybe you don't know, but what do you remember about some of the thoughts and some of the feelings that you had maybe from like five to 10. So before you even really know, you know what it all means or where it's all going, do you have a recollection of what it felt like to just kind of like put those dots together? Yeah, I feel like it felt like I was just different, right? Like all of my friends were kind of in this similar experience and we all had things in common, but there was just like, there was just something that I couldn't put my finger on. I was like, I'm different in this way. And I didn't really know what it was. And I think in those early stages, um, you know, maybe I started to develop earlier than my friends, started to go through puberty earlier. And that obviously is a huge factor. But I think even before that, there was just like something on my mind, like, oh, like I have to wear bigger shirts than my friends. Like that's, that's weird. Like, why is that a thing? Or, oh, all my friends are wearing Abercrombie. And then like, when I go to shop there, nothing fits me. And then you kind of just start to question from there. And then it spirals into actually understanding what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Very relatable. I have mm -hmm. very specific <laughs> memories of the Hollister and Abercrombie. From oh, yeah. Early and on in my life. Yeah. And then later on, you know, my dad was like, well, Abercrombie's racist. So I'm not buying you clothes from there, but you want them so bad. And they don't okay. even fit you. Yeah. Oh, everything the, about it. I remember like the going to the mall because that was like, the, you know, that's the cool thing to do when you're that age. And 
the one time that I went in and I bought myself a scarf from Abercrombie because it <laughs> only was thing that the one thing that would fit my body. <laughs> and it was yeah. just like, yeah, yeah. And it's like, again, you know, you and I could sit here and laugh about it now because haha, Abercrombie, but also the reason we're talking about this is because we both know how absolutely heartbreaking and painful it is to be that kid and mm -hmm. to know not just that you're different. And this is a theme I keep hearing, not just that there's a difference, but that the difference is defective. The difference is bad. The difference is negative. And it's not the thin friends who are different. It's being in a bigger body is different and that you've already internalized. That means a bad thing. Mm hmm before you're five, before you're seven, before you're 10 years old. Yeah. So then what, Emily? Then what? Then, like I said, I totally transparently went through puberty before most of my friends. Um, and that I think was like very shocking. And, and I'm still best friends with the girls that I was friends with at fifth grade graduation, which is like pretty amazing. Um, and we laugh about it now, but then it was like so self-conscious for me to look, we all wore like these, you know, essentially matching outfits. And when I saw those pictures, you know, after fifth grade graduation, I was heartbroken. So I feel like uh, after seeing that picture and just kind of getting a real visual of like how I was different from my friends, really that was kind of like the turning point because I was like, why am I going through this? Why am I the one person singled out? Um, and my friends aren't going through the same thing and they couldn't relate to me in the same way. And, you know, is this because I'm eating too much or is this like, you know, when you're a kid, you don't understand that like, this is just gonna happen and it's in your genetics and you're gonna go through puberty and everyone does it. and. For me, it felt really connected to weight because, you know, as a woman, like that is connected to going through puberty. And I think I really didn't understand any of that. And it was not the, you know, teenage movie of like, oh my God, I get to go bra shopping. It was like, I don't want any part of any of this. Yeah. Um, and I was really embarrassed by all of it. Uh, and I think going into middle school and, you know, girls start talking to boys and people get clicky. And that was just this huge insecurity I had because um, I didn't feel pretty. I didn't feel feminine. I just felt like I was going through this thing completely alone. Um, and it was just really something that like weighed on me a lot. I think I went through a couple, you know, bullying instances in middle school. and whether those really were connected to my weight or not, they always felt like they were. Yeah. You know, it could have been just girls being mean, but it always, to me, came back to, oh, it's because I'm fat. Yeah. Um, and I think that really was hard. And I actually, in doing some work with you, like I unearthed this memory that I had clearly repressed from like sixth or seventh grade of a boy who did actually call me fat in a, a bullying instance, let's call it. And this boy ended up being someone who I had a friendly relationship with by the end of high school, but I buried that memory so deep down that it wasn't until I was 27 years old that I was able to be like, holy crap, he actually said something to me about my weight that time. 
And that's why I was so upset. And that's why this kept weighing on me so much because I couldn't escape it because whether it was me internalizing everything or a parent externally saying something or a peer like this kid saying something because, you know, whether he knew what he was saying or not, that's an easy insult for kids to say. Yeah. And it just, it got me right in the heart. Yeah. Thank you. I, I want to just take this moment to say something that feels really important because now when I hear this and I hear this story and again, almost hear my own story in your story, something that just comes through so clearly is something that I have and will continue to talk about on this podcast, but the relationship between our bodies and what's happening with our bodies in a social context and the brain science of what's going on in our animal primitive survival brain. Because what you're speaking to is what I remember learning when I was at NYU getting my master's in social work and we were learning about child psychology and child development. And I thought it was really fascinating how at a certain period of your time, you know, when we're very young and we're really dependent on a parent, that's who we look to, to basically be the authority and tell us like how to do stuff and like what to do and what not to do. We look at our parents and that's quote, developmentally appropriate that we are consulting our parents before we leave the house or, you know, run through the streets or whatever. But then something starts to shift as we grow up a little bit more. And now who we consult the most, who we look around and get our cues and ideas and context from the most, even more than our parents, is our peers. Because when we're Mm -hmm. in middle school-ish years, it actually is developmentally appropriate for us to be putting so much value in the opinions and the judgments of other people that are our peers, not our parents, not not even our teachers, not our authorities, our peers. Mm -hmm. Something shifts in the brain and that becomes what matters. And so it's just so important, I think, to understand that that's the developmentally appropriate way for the brain to work. Because what I, and I'm sure some of the people listening to this, I just want to be like, but, you know, just have confidence and just feel good about yourself and just love yourself. (laughs) And like, I just want, you know, I want every like five and seven and eight and 10 year old girl to just love themselves. And it's like, yes. And so do I, you know, and that's really important. And it is developmentally appropriate to be concerned with what the other kids are saying about you. It just is because it goes back to that primitive survival brain. We're just trying to stay alive. And that's one of the ways that we do it is making sure that we're okay out here in the social world. So it's just to know that that is what's going on. That's the mechanism that's playing out there. It's keeping you safe. It just so happens Mm -hmm. that the animal brain in a human middle school is not just keeping you safe, but making you very anxious and making you very unhappy. And it's just kind of, you know, it's, it's the human experience. But so just kind of adding that brain context to it um, is always where I'm coming from because it helps, I think, understand what's going on here. So yeah, yeah. thank you for letting me jump in there. Um, okay, Emily. So you have these 
awarenesses, let's say. It's on your radar. It's not feeling very good. You've heard comments at school. You've heard comments from parents. Now you're somewhere between your, you know, 10, 15, middle school. What starts to happen next? Yeah, I think then you get into the phase where everyone's kind of playing catch up. So everyone else is now going through puberty and start hanging out with boys and going through that experience and going through, you know, bat mitzvah season, growing up in very Jewish area. I know you relate. Um, you know, we had parties every single weekend, you know, when you're 13 and you have to wear a dress and wear little heels and you get dressed up and you put makeup on for the first time. And I think that season of life, let's call it, um, that's another point that I can kind of, you know, think of and say, oh, that's where the awareness started to grow of like how uncomfortable I was in my body because everyone was wearing the same type of dresses and I maybe couldn't wear those dresses. And, you know, I had to wear a bra with everything and my friends didn't have to do that. And, you know, when you would go grab your sweatshirt at the end and everyone's grabbing a small and you have to grab a medium or a large, like those tiny little things that I guarantee none of my friends were thinking about were like big flashing lights to me. Like, you're the fat one, you got to get the medium or the large. And, it, and it's like such a little thing. But I think to your point before, those little moments just at that point in time weigh so heavily on you and everything feels like it's the biggest deal in the world. And I totally went through like the terrible teens. And I think that was a large part of it is like not knowing how to process those emotions or talk about how I was feeling because I was so ashamed of the way my body looked or whatever. And I think that's probably around when I started talking to my parents about, you know, how I was feeling about my body or what I was thinking. Um, you know, I was playing sports in middle school. So thinking about like exercise a little bit more um, or, you know, when you're running the mile and everything. And I was, I played field hockey in middle school and high school and I was pretty good. I will say that I couldn't run for the life of me. I always had to do extra runs because I couldn't make it within the time. Meanwhile, the other girls on my team are running like seven, eight minute miles. And I'm like, oh, I can't get around in like less than 12 Um, and that was really frustrating for me too, because I think I loved playing the sport so much and I love team sports and there's so much shame with being like, you didn't make it under the time and you have to do more and you are less than everyone else on the team. Cause that's what they were saying to me. And in field hockey, you wear skirts and there you go. Here's another thing to make you feel self-conscious about yourself because everyone's got their tiny little skirt. And I'm like, give me a larger size. That one doesn't fit. Give me a larger size. Um, and just all those things combined together and you have a recipe for anxiety, for, you know, self-confidence issues for everything else. And I think another thing that I really relate to your story is like, I felt confident in a lot of other areas. I wouldn't say I was not a confident person. I was super confident in school. I was like, I'm really smart. I do well on tests. I, you know, can be in the honors classes, all of that stuff, but socially, not, not so much. I've had my crew. I had my people, 
but you know, a lot of self-confidence issues, just being in social settings um, because of all the thoughts that I was swirling and thinking that people were saying about me, which in reality, you know, now looking back, you're like, no one was really thinking that, but you really truly believe that everyone else in the room is saying those bad things that you're saying to yourself. Yeah, totally hear you. Now you kind of touched on this, but I was just really curious to ask you about as you are riding the emotional roller coaster that you are painting beautifully. Um, what, how did you cope with that in on the emotional, you know, dimension? Um, because what you're saying is it was really stressful and very emotional. And you were collecting a lot of this stuff. And I'm just like, were you bottling it all up? Were you holding all of this in? How did you deal with it in an emotional way? Yeah, I think emotionally, I bottled a lot of it up, a lot of it. And then I think I am so much the victim of like, I'm not bottling it up and throwing it away and being like, oh, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. I'm bottling it up and my bottle is getting fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller until there is no more room and then it bursts. And that is an outburst. And that was, you know, at home, usually one thing went wrong and suddenly the world is ending. And I can now understand, oh, that wasn't just that thing went wrong and I got really upset about it. It was, oh, all these other things were happening to me and I didn't know how to process them. Mm -hmm. And so it kept filling and filling and filling and then it overflowed. And that was not something that I think even my parents understood, you know, unfortunately, and that's no fault on them, but it's, we as a team didn't know how to deal with it either. And that caused a lot of issues, I think, because I didn't know what was happening. I was just like, I'm so upset. And they're like, we don't know why you're so upset. Like, there's no reason for this. And it's like, now I'm like, oh, well, I was feeling a lot of feelings, but I wasn't feeling them. Yeah. To use your words. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) wow. And that's so informative. And I'm thinking so many things. One is because today, the day that we're having this conversation is the day that episode number three with Nicole Sachs was released. So we're talking about mind body healing, not just around our relationship with food and eating, but also our relationship and experience with chronic physical pain symptoms. And also in a general sense, anxiety and depression and the stickiness of being a human. And what you're illustrating is exactly that point. (laughs) That is bottle it up, bottle it up, bottle it up. That is in Nicole's world, the emotional reservoir of the unfelt feelings. And so for you, Emily, as a teenager, it was outbursts. It was just uncontrollable outbursts of emotion. And the point I'm making here is that it could be quote outbursts. It could also be chronic pain. It could also Mm -hmm. be disordered eating and body image. It could also be depression, anxiety, symptoms of other things, but it's just, this is the human experience. And exactly like what you're saying is we either feel all that stuff or there's a consequence to not feeling it. And we don't really get to choose the consequence. We just, at a certain point, 
embody it and have to learn how to cope with it. So thank you for sharing that. It's just, you know, however, however it looks, we're all manifesting out here in the physical world, everything that's going on inside. So Mm -hmm. thank you. So, okay. You're starting to have outbursts. You're feeling feelings. You're starting to like put these things together. How old are you when you start doing all of that? I don't know. I guess I would say like early high school. Um, I think the first time I like really, you know, there have definitely been conversations, especially in dressing rooms with my mom where I was like, oh, I hate the way clothes don't fit me, blah, blah, blah. And she would, I remember vividly, she's like, do you want me to help you? My mom, you know, had battled with body image and eating her whole life. And she had had, she had been on Weight Watchers and had some success with that. And, you know, she asked me if I wanted help. And I don't know when I eventually said like, yes. Um, But I think the first time I went on Weight Watchers was probably the beginning of 10th grade. So sophomore in high school um, is when I really started being like, I need to lose weight. I need to go from this number to a lower number. I need to go from this body size to a smaller body size. And I've told, you know, a couple people this story, but the first thing that I cut out going on Weight Watchers was cereal. And I was like, I was like the cereal queen. Every morning without fail, I had cereal for breakfast and I loved breakfast. And I could profess my love for breakfast to anyone who would listen. And I stopped eating breakfast because of that, because I didn't know what to do if I didn't have cereal. And it really like, that is a point that I'm like, I didn't eat breakfast for so many years. And it all can kind of lead back to that. Um, And I'm like shaking (laughs) as I say this, but it's so crazy also because these are thoughts that I've had or things that I've journaled, but actually saying them out loud is like crazy. Um, But that's really when it started. And now you have time. (laughs) No, but I'm like, I know. um, Yeah. And I remember an incident with my mom probably freshman year of high school and I had this is after I had asked her you know to help me think about my eating a little bit more and hopefully lose a few pounds and I was looking through the pantry for a snack and I think maybe I grabbed a granola bar and again not to say that she knew what she was doing but she said you know are you sure you want that maybe you want an apple instead with the best intentions to mine. And that little line has stuck with me for better or for worse, because I was just like, F you, I want to eat what I want to eat. And I don't want anyone to tell me. And I got so upset. And this is like one of my outbursts. And she was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you asked, I asked if you wanted my help and you said, yes. And so I'm just doing what you asked. And I don't understand. Like, why you're so upset about this granola bar with the apple situation. And I think again, like now looking back, understanding what that meant and all the emotions that led up to that one tiny decision, but also how heavy that one decision felt. And that was every decision. It was like, ah, am I going to have this or that? Because what is that going to mean for my weight? Is that the right decision to make? Or is that the bad decision to make? Um, and I think that's what kind of led me to be like, oh, I need to be on a program. Cause like 
then the program's telling me what to do. And then you and I don't have to interface Mm -hmm. and the program will tell me everything. And the program will solve all my problems as, as we all have gone through. Um, and I'm just like, wow, Emily, you're, you're 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Take a breath. Cause what I'm thinking of when I hear this, first of all, I so deeply relate and the amount of times that I only wish I could have turned around to my mom who I love you, mom. I know you're listening. And also the amount of times that I wanted to turn around and be like, tell me to eat a goddamn fucking yogurt. One more time, woman. Like (laughs) I said, I wanted Doritos (laughs) and like have, have an apple or a yogurt. I could like the amount of times I heard that. And so it's like, A, I can- The yo play. Right? Like I just, I can, I I so relate. And um, I still am just thinking so much about how you can hear it when you say it. And I'm sure, Emily, you're feeling it physically. That is, it becomes a system of safety and danger. It's not just about- should I eat the good food or the bad food? Am I making the right decision or the wrong decision? That's the way we're thinking about all of it as humans in our human brain. But our animal brain is not aware of any of that. And our animal brain is only aware that you're having a conversation around, am I going to be safe or am I going to be in danger? And you can feel, again, that charge around it. The reason that it feels so scary is because we're not talking about yogurt. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about we are 5, 10, and 15 years old desperately trying to feel safe. And this is an uninformed attempt at doing exactly that. That's just all it is. So, okay, you start, you know, venturing into the world of dieting. And how did that go? Well, at first it went great. You know, you drop those first five pounds. You're like, wow, I'm the best. I could do this. And of course it was nothing that I, I never told any of my friends about this. This was like very secretive stuff. And, um, you know, you're thinking about like, you start learning about things too. I think that's something that's really interesting to me is like, I started learning about calories and fat and carbs and fiber, probably younger than a lot of my friends, because I had to think about it because I was on this diet. Um, and, and having those things explained to me and putting numbers into a system and calculating and doing all of that and being like, Oh, I only have five points left. What can I do with that? Um, so there's a lot of math involved, which was not fun for me. Um, so you know, I think it, it started off well. And then as we all know, you fall off the diet because you can't sustain it. But I think, like I said, some of those diet habits continued with me. Um, and I definitely went back on Weight Watchers definitely at least once more during high school, again, later on in life, several times, um, And I think I just felt a little bit more aware when I stopped really doing it. I was just kind of, like I said, I stopped eating cereal completely for, for probably 10 years, I will say. 
Um, and so those little things really imprinted on me. And I think also as well, you know, in the beginning of high school, I was going to camp in the summers and, you know, you eat in the dining hall and you're served all the food and you don't have a lot of choices. But as, you know, the collective teen group starts thinking more about their body, it's like, oh, well, we used to always love fried chicken patty for dinner, but maybe now we're all just going to get the salad bar tonight and those kinds of things. And it was like, we're at camp, like eat the chicken patty. But I think those things on occasion were trickling in on a larger scale, um, especially as you move through high school. Then, then you go through the phase of like, everyone's getting their license and you can go out to eat and mm-hmm. what are we going to eat? And sometimes it's like, oh, it's pizza or like chicken parm pizza. That was like the thing that everyone would get. Um, but then, you know, when girls start spiraling their thoughts and they're like, oh, you know, I think I'm just going to get salad this time. And then everyone starts eating salad. And not everyone knows why they're eating salad, but you're all eating salad. Um, Whether it's drenched in ranch dressing or not, um, all of those things. So I think then it started being like, okay, everyone collectively is sort of moving towards a healthier place. So then I felt like I was more aware of it. And I kind of knew I knew more than some people, but it wasn't something that I was like, oh, like, did you know that dressing actually has like 300 calories in it? You know, it wasn't that. It was just like, okay, like it's not weird if I eat a salad in front of people now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But always thinking about those things and, you know, going to parties when you start getting older in high school and then you start drinking underage. Sorry, everyone. It happens. <laughs> um, and thinking about that too. And I think all of those things kind of played into the social anxiety that I was already feeling because now you're eating outside together before you're only eating with your family. Now you're going out to eat with all your friends. You're eating in front of people who maybe aren't even in your circle at parties or you're drinking in front of them. You're wearing more expressive clothing. You know, your parents aren't buying everything for you anymore. And that shift was kind of like, oh, like I kind of want to cover myself up, but I also want to be there. So it was like a weird balance of, I want to go and do all the things. I don't think that I ever felt held back from doing certain things, you know, having a normal high school experience, but I also think I was very self-conscious the whole way through. Yeah, It was, it was always there. Yeah. I can imagine how many people are sitting here. Like I am just like (laughs) nodding and nodding and nodding and nodding. (laughs) Little bobbleheads. Yeah. Because it's, you're speaking to the human experience of what it is to be in middle school in a diet culture and just trying to like juggle all of it and survive. So, okay. I'm curious now because I know that you then, you know, you go on your, your dieting, you have lots of diet thoughts in your head. And I think at this point you are in some ways just kind of like a poster child of Western society. Like you're a kid, you learned nutrition from Weight Watchers, right? Been there. Like the reason that yep. I know things is because I went on diets as a kid. I, I knew nutrition. Um, so I have a feeling that, you know, it's like years of this for a while, this kind of diet, yo-yo, on, off, good, bad, right, wrong kind of nonsense. Um, 
But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about then what started to change or what started to shift. How did, how did someone like me land on your radar and, you know, how did, how did you even get to that point? Yeah, I think first I have to go through like the college experience. And I think another thing that you and I have in common, Lisa, is like, we had a very similar experience in terms of like timeline in college, I think. Um, I wasn't necessarily needing to lose 150 pounds, but I got to college and I was having great time. And then I started to get really anxious and I started to go to the gym first as a way to cope with anxiety, but then I started losing weight and I wasn't necessarily going with the goal to lose weight. I kind of just had this energy and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, college is unfamiliar. It's stressful. I'm going to just start going to the gym. And then I started losing weight and then I got really addicted to that. And I had to do an hour of cardio every single day of the week. Then I went to the weight room for at least 30 to 45 minutes after that. And I had to do that every single day. Um, and so, you know, I get into sorority and then you have all these girls who are all having the diet thoughts. They're all talking about their bodies constantly you know, some girls had disordered eating habits and you see that and you emulated that whether you thought it was okay or not, because you got addicted to, or sorry, I got addicted to the idea of losing weight. And even in the dining hall, before I lived in my sorority house, I was like, okay, I'm losing weight. Like, what should I eat to keep losing weight? Okay. I'm going to get a piece of grilled chicken from the burger bar and put it on a bed of romaine. And I ate that every single day. And I started having stomach issues and I was like, Hmm, that's weird. I've never had stomach issues before. It's probably the dining hall. We'll get to that part. (laughs) Um, but that's when it started. Yeah. Uh, and then I move into the sorority house and we get food cooked for us and everyone's again, still talking about their bodies and everyone's changing in front of each other and sharing clothes. And, you know, you just get really wrapped up in that. And I was going to the gym probably two hours a day, every single day. I maybe took an off day. I was very concerned with what I was eating. I was eating a Quest bar in the morning, an apple after the gym, a salad, and then whatever was the lowest carb option for dinner. And I was really thinking about it. I was using Weight Watchers. I was using my fitness pal. I was tracking everything. I was really trying to be good. And you get the results and you're like, wow this is the lowest number I've ever seen on the scale. I don't know when I look this, you know, this good. I'm seeing muscles in my body. I'm able to share clothes with people. Like sharing clothes with people was like, oh my God, like I made it. I made it. I can share clothes with my sorority sisters. Yeah. And that was like, they probably did not have one thought about that. But to me, it was like, I won. I got this. I did it. And I think again, to like, connect with your story. It's like, you're like, I, I did the thing. Everyone's been telling me to do this my whole life. I've been trying to do it and I did it and no one helped me. I did it. And that is so satisfying. Um, and I just didn't know that it wasn't sustainable at the time. I thought I found the key to life. You know, I really thought that that was the answer. And then my junior year, um, you know, I probably kept that up. My junior year, I also went abroad. I studied in Australia, which was a dream. 
Um, and I really started to get really anxious while I was there. Um, I was never a homesick person and I don't think my anxiety was homesickness, but I couldn't figure out why it was happening. And so I kind of was like, Hmm, maybe I am homesick. Maybe that is it. Cause I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And I was like, I'm here in a place that most people don't ever get the chance to go to. And I'm sad. What's wrong with me? You know, I was, I was, and then I would get upset that I was upset. And then you cycle through. And I think that was the, the first time I ever had a panic attack was when I was studying abroad. And I had no idea what it was. I was always like, whatever, chill, go with the flow. Anxiety, I don't know her. And I, you know, remember myself in the dark in my apartment on the floor. And just like, I, I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to do anything. I'm so just sad and anxious and I didn't understand those feelings um and I think a lot of that was being out of control I was controlling my life for so long and then I was here and we were traveling every weekend we were going to all the different food spots we were maybe going to class once a week like doing all the things that you're supposed to do when you study abroad really taking advantage of the experience and I think I had been in such a strict regimen that when I went out of it, I just fell apart. I didn't know what to do with myself. And, um, you know, there were looking back, like I was also not a good friend because I wasn't in a good place of myself. And so I couldn't be there for anyone else. And I couldn't establish relationships with anyone else because I wasn't in a good place. And I was upset that I was in a bad place and I didn't know how to feel my feelings and understand it. And I actually went to a counselor at my school in Australia. And I was like, I think I had a panic attack. I don't know what that is, but I think that's what this was. And this, you know, lovely Australian woman in her accent was like, oh, like, tell me about it. And like, how are you feeling? Like, have you ever seen a psychiatrist before? Have you ever seen a psychologist? And I was like, I don't need those things. Like, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I just don't know what else to do at this point. I was desperate. And I called my mom and she was kind of shocked too. She was like, whoa, like, where did this come from? I didn't know that you were feeling this way. And it was just like a total turning point for me because I was like, something is up. Something is up with me. And I don't know how to really get out of it right now, but I'll try going to yoga once a week. I started going to yoga while I was studying abroad, which I loved. I loved it so much. And it was very... um, it felt very much like a spiritual class versus I felt like some of the ones I'd taken in the U.S. were like an exercise class and that really resonated for me and so I thought that that was helping a little bit but I just still didn't realize that I also needed to process the feelings and do the yoga. I couldn't just go to yoga and I would be okay. Um, So I kind of was in this spot where I was like okay I know something's up with me with all of the things that I'm feeling, but I don't know what it is. And so I come back from abroad and I also start having really bad IBS. I start having stomach problems every time I eat out. And like, I remember it was like a thing, my senior year of college, every time we went out to eat, my friends are like, can you eat anything here? Are you gonna be okay? Are you gonna be on the floor later? And I was like, I'm probably gonna be on the floor later. So like get the Tums ready. 
And just, we thought that I had a tapeworm or something. Mm-hmm. We were like, there's, there's something wrong with you. There was nothing wrong with me, really. <laughs> spoiler um, alert. And I, spoiler alert. It's You're not, not broken. that tapeworm. I was like, oh man, like this is, this is what happens when you get old, I guess. Like you just can't eat pasta for every meal. And I was like, what is happening? Um, so I feel like, you know, senior year, I come back from abroad and I gained a lot of weight abroad. I had full fat yogurt every day. I was eating pastries. I was not, I tried to meal prep for myself abroad, which is hysterical. Like not kidding. I bought Tupperware at like Australian Ikea. I was like, I'm going to make salads for myself. Who are you kidding? Who are you kidding? So I tried that. Didn't work. I bought Tupperware. So I come back from abroad and I gained all the weight that I had previously lost back, probably and some. And so then I was really self-conscious. I was like, oh, I was winning before and now I'm a loser. That's kind of the mindset. And so I was like, okay, I got to get back on what I was doing before. I've got to get back on doing an hour of cardio and 30 to 45 minutes of weight every single day. I got to back, get back on to like eating salads and doing this and doing that. Surprise, I couldn't keep that up because it's not sustainable. So, you know, I was working out more, maybe I lost a little bit, but I was still really self-conscious because I was constantly comparing myself to the version of myself a year and a half before. And why couldn't I go back to her? And it felt like something was wrong. You know, I felt like I had failed myself because I was, I thought I had found the solution and I thought that I could just go back to it whenever I wanted to. And that abroad was just a blip. And I decided not to keep on my program, but I could go back on it. No, that didn't happen. Um, And I started getting more into running and I thought that would help me lose more weight and didn't really do that. Um, And, you know, the end of college, all you want to do is go out with your friends. You don't want to miss any opportunity. You don't want to say no to anything been drinking all the time. And so I really like by the end of college was probably not doing much. And then everyone's starting to look for a job. And I went and like I said before, I'm a weird horse girl. I went and worked for a horseback riding trainer for six months, which was great. Um, I loved it. I'm so happy that I didn't go straight into the workforce. I recommend that to anyone. Um, especially if you have a passion to go do that, even if it's not going to be your career, go explore it. Um, but that aside, I was working a lot when we were in like competition season. And so I would be up at the crack of dawn, cleaning stalls, feeding horses, getting horses to the show ring, doing that. And I like wouldn't eat all day, but it was one of those things like, oh, I don't even, I'm so busy. I didn't eat all day. And then at the end of the day, I'd be like, I need a fat burger and fries and ice cream and a beer. And it was like everything, all my calories for the day in one meal. It was like a binge. And with that said, I will say I was a binge eater my whole life. I think that's one point I didn't touch on yet. So I was doing that. Then I get into the corporate workforce. I start working in advertising and I move into Manhattan. Finally, I'm living with my friend from college. And all that I can think about is my body and food. 
I am so stressed out by the thought of food, just any food. It's not like one thing or another. It's like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to eat for dinner. Oh my God, I didn't meal prep anything. Oh my, it was just so much. And I remember it got to the point where I was like, I am not okay. I finally realized like this, I could not switch my brain off of food. It was just food, 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 food. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad. You can't control yourself around food. And I was walking on the Upper East Side after going to a spin class or something. And the second I left the spin class, I was thinking about food, 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 food. And I called my mom and I just started crying. And I was like, I think I need to go talk to someone because I can't stop thinking about food and I can't go on a diet. It's not about that. I just can't stop thinking about it. And it's consuming everything within me and it's making me anxious. And I think that was the first time I kind of vocalized where a lot of that anxiety was coming from. And so my, my brother had a therapist growing up. And so I asked my mom to ask that therapist for a recommendation of someone in New York City. And so she gave me a list of these people who specialized in disordered eating and eating disorders. And so I kind of just did, you know, the little Googling you can do on psychotherapists because that's, there's not a lot of, you know, they're not like publishing, you know, here's all about me and here's my social media all the time. And I called this woman and I was like, I left her a voicemail and I was like, hey, I just can't stop thinking about food. I, I need some help. I don't know. This doctor recommended you. Can you help me? And she called me back and she was like, this is a lot of what I do. I have a lot of experience with this. I'd love if you'd come in and meet me. And so then I started going to psychotherapy and that was really hard for me, I will say, because I never thought that there was anything wrong with me and going to therapy was like, there's something wrong with you. She says, yeah. she, she says with, <laughs> with quote marks on the word wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Been there. Yeah. And the first session, it's like, it feels like a cliche, but I just bawled for an hour. I just, I was like, and this and that and this and that. And I was like, afterwards, I was like, oh my God, I was holding all of that in. And I was like, she barely even said anything the whole time. And I just like knew, I was like, all right, open the floodgates, here it comes. And she explained to me, you know, like, what working with a psychotherapist meant and some of the things that we could explore. And I was like, okay, I think like, I, I just don't know what else to do. I need to do this because I think it's the right thing and I don't know what else. And so that ended up being a really great experience. I was in therapy with this specific therapist for probably four years, maybe more. Um, and we went through so many things and I learned that my anxiety and my stress and my outbursts were not because anything was wrong with me. And that was mm. so liberating. And I know anyone who's gone through that experience and done the work knows what that means. It's like, oh, well, this happened because this, and you weren't understanding these feelings and, you know, the way that you grew up or the thing that someone said to you and brought you to this point. And so we explored so much in that work. And I learned so much about myself and who I am and where I wanted to go and things that I wanted to work on for me. And within that, we kind of lost the food piece because I learned it's not the food that you're scared of. 
Uh, obviously we know that now, but it, it kind of transformed me into this place. And so fast forward through all those years of therapy, you know, we kind of got I'm to a place. I'm actually going to stop you yeah. for one second, just because mm-hmm. I, you know your story. So yeah. we'll come right back to this point. But there's two things that I'm thinking of while you're saying this. One is the important thing about talking about outbursts specifically that is different than, um, I mean, it's not different energetically, but it's a little bit different in that this is something that very, very often happens with children is that you have a quote bad student or you have a quote bad kid. And very often that bad kid um, is, it's the emotional outlet. It's the energetic outlet for that energy that, for example, I as a kid was coping with by using food and eating like a drug. I was just suppressing that, numbing that, pushing that away. But some kids um, have the other approach that is let it out, but it's just so uncontrollable because there's so much pent up, built up energy. So I just want to kind of shout out the same way Mm -hmm. that we do that blame the victim thing when you're a fat kid and then no one's asking about how do you feel or what's going on with you. It's just like, stop eating. The same is true with a kid who's having a really hard time regulating themselves emotionally is that we very often tend to frame that as you're bad, stop doing what you're doing without getting curious around why is this child out having an outburst that is uncontrollable. Um, And that's true, obviously, for children as well as adults, but I think we um, overlook that as kids. And then the other thing that I'm thinking a lot about while you're saying all this is when I took, I took a play therapy, like a children's therapy class when I was at NYU. And I had a really great professor for, for that one class. But I remember this metaphor that she taught to us that I just want to share with anyone who's listening, because what you're saying reminds me so much of this. That is, it's kind of like, this is her metaphor for explaining what therapy is and how therapy works for children but because we're all just children, it really works for adults as well. (laughs) So that is, let's say, you know, you're in this room and you have all these toys all over the room. And for the sake of cleanup, just to make your life really easy and convenient, you just start throwing all this stuff under the rug. You just brush all this stuff under the rug. And that's fine because that does help you get the room clean. And there's nothing inherently wrong with putting things under the rug. It's just that after you put enough things under the rug and they start to pile up and then they just start piling up so much that you can't move around in the room and and then they're piled up so much you can't even play with them anymore and then things are piled up so much that you can't even get out of the room because everything is just so high and so what we then have to do is look under the rug but the fear in children as well as adults the fear in doing something like therapy is that your therapist, for example, maybe will rip the rug away and say, you're not allowed to hide anything under here anymore. And that's not what therapy is or how therapy works. What we start to do is you kind of like lift up the rug and look under it and then take out one toy at a time and then put the rug back down and play with that toy for a little bit. 
And then when you're done with that one, then you look under the rug when you're ready again, and then you could take out another one and then, and then you do it that way. And so a, I think that's just a beautiful illustration of what therapy is and how it works, but also B, just the way that you're describing this kind of like build up and build up and build up and build up. And I want to just be really clear that there's nothing wrong or bad with keeping things inside. Sometimes it's not safe to let those things out. So it's not the keeping it in that's a problem. It's the keeping it in and 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 never letting anything out. That Mm -hmm. is what ends up being the problem energetically and physiologically. So I just want that to be clear. But okay, so now you start to move through that process of actually speaking with someone, looking, you know, grabbing your little things from under the rug one, one at a time. And then what happens? And then what happens is I get to a point where I was like, I'm, I'm done with even just talking about food. Like I, I, I want to be done with all food rules and throwing everything out the window. And we had this analogy of this muffin and it was like, muffins were always bad food. And I was like, no, I'm ready to eat the muffin and I don't want any shame. And so we were using this muffin analogy and I kind of just threw all my food rules out. And I was like, I'm gonna eat whatever I want, whenever I want. And this is bringing you up to speed. This is the start of COVID and we're in lockdown and I'm not going out to eat. I'm cooking everything. We're scared to go to the grocery store. And I threw out all my food rules. And then I kind of am just getting this feeling of like, all right, this isn't working for me either. I don't want to throw out all my food rules. I want to be able to eat whatever I want, but I also feel completely lost in a world where I have no rules. And so I also had stopped exercising kind of because we were in lockdown and I didn't know what to do with myself. And note with that, I ran the New York City Marathon in 2019, just before COVID. And so I had been in hardcore training and then the world lockdown. I was like, what do I do now? I don't know what to do with myself. And I had been following Lisa for a while on social media because I knew of her through some mutual friends with Michigan. I have to say go blue if I mention Michigan. (laughs) Um, I didn't go to Michigan, but I know I have to say it. (laughs) You're allowed. (laughs) so I've been following her for a while and you know I like her your work always kind of resonated with me I was like at first it was just the shock factor right it's like oh my god this girl lost half her body weight like good for her that's awesome she became a personal trainer wow she like knows about nutrition wow you know just all those things but then I think your work started to shift into more of this mind body experience that you start talking about on all your social media. And I was like, that's, that's what's ringing a bell in my mind. And I thought about it for a while. I was like, "Mm, I think I want to meet with her. And I was like, no, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And one day I was just, I was so upset. I was, again, it was like almost one of these outbursts again. Right. I was like, all these feelings had piled up and I was just desperate. I was like, I need, I need some more help. I need some help that specifically around food and eating and body image, because I'm getting some other stuff from the therapy that I was already doing, but I need this specifically. And that's what Lisa is speaking to. And so I need to talk to her. And so I filled out the little form 
we set our time for our intro call. And I remember I took it from my car because I was out by horseback riding and I didn't want anyone to see me. So I like went to this park and parked my car and we get on the phone and kind of almost like the beginning of this, I just start like rambling. And Lisa's like, breathe, just breathe. And I was like, and I was starting to tear up. And she was like, you said to me, you were like, you can, you can cry. Like, that's, that's cool. You can do that here. Like let it out because you're just building, 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 just like, let it go. And I just started crying. And it was kind of the same thing. The first time I went to therapy of like, oh, this is a safe space. And like that this time when I met Lisa, I was like, oh, I kind of know this feeling. I know that I should be able to let some of these feelings out and feel them. Whether I could put that into a sentence like I just did, no. But I knew the feeling that I was getting from talking with you. And what really also resonated is that our stories had really similar points. The IBS after going abroad, like just that little bit. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that I was like, oh my God, like this is the same thing. And this isn't because I had a tapeworm or whatever. Because at that point I had been to the gastroenterologist, I taken antibiotics and I thought they kind of worked. But when you told me about that, I was like, oh, I had anxiety. The anxiety was causing stomach issues. I've been working on the anxiety and my stomach issues are no longer. Yeah. Big brain explosion. Yeah. And so all those little things kind of were like, ah, this is the situation I'm meant to be in. And I felt at that point, I was ready for the information you were going to give me. But had we met three years, two years, a year earlier, I wasn't ready for that. I had to go through a lot of stuff on my own, learn a lot of stuff about me and who I am before I was ready to say, okay, I know I want a mind-body approach to this because I think that's what's really going to resonate for me. And I didn't know that about myself before I went through therapy and before I learned all those things. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up doing one-on-one with you. And now I like tell anyone who will listen, anytime a friend asks me, like, I've just been like feeling really down about like my eating or my working out and like da da da. And I'm like, hold up. I have a wealth of knowledge. Follow this girl on Instagram, watch her stories. Don't think about the food that you're eating. Like it's not, and I'm like, I want to shake you. Like, I want to be like, it's not about the wheat bread or the white bread. It's not about that. And it's hard for a lot of people to understand. And that is the whole point of getting out of the cave because people don't get it. But if you're open to it and you are ready in yourself to understand that, especially people who have gone through such traumatic experiences with food and weight and body image in your life, you know that you want this to be gone. No one wants to carry this around. It sucks. It sucks. It sucks. It sucks. And no one wants to have it. And you want it to go away and you don't know how. And it's not about, okay, one day it's magically gone. It's understanding who you are, how you can feel your feelings. And by feeling your feelings, oh my God, magically, I don't care what my body looks like most of the time. There are days where I'm like, ugh, I don't want to look in the mirror. 
Of course, because to your point, that is the human experience, which I have learned before this work. I didn't know that that was okay. I thought that it was just, oh, every day is going to be perfect and I'm never going to care again. And there's going to be a pill that snaps, I'm done. I'm going to do a 10 week program and I'm going to be cured for life. No, that's not it. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think being able to understand that and know that at my core, that like, you're going to have days where you don't like your body and that is okay. That doesn't mean you're broken. That doesn't mean that anything's wrong with you. It's just a fact of life at this point. So just kind of roll with it and know that the next day is probably going to be better. And that has been so liberating, so liberating to just be like, oh, okay. Yeah. This is a shitty day. Hmm. Whatever. Tomorrow is a different day. Yes. Amazing. What you're talking about in so many ways is radical acceptance. It's just acceptance that like some days are going to be good. Some days are not going to be as good. And sometimes you're going to feel this way. Sometimes you're going to feel that way. And all of it is right. All of it is as it is supposed to be. So the yes, as Nicole (laughs) Sachs has said a million times, transformation begins with a radical acceptance of what is And that's really what this work is about. When we say over and over and over again, oh, it's not the food, it's not the food, it's not the food. I at least spent a very long time being like, well, if it's not the food, then what is it actually? And like, that's what it is, is is that acceptance muscle. That's what we are working and strengthening and practicing. So I also just have to say, anyone who's listening to this, Emily is someone who probably more so than most, if not all of my clients, is someone who will text or email me to just be like, my friend said this thing and then I said this thing and I told them all about this and all about that and all about this and all about that. And so having said that, and I know that Emily is carrying this message loud and clear in her life, like she says, um, What are some of, not to put you too much on the spot, but if you were to identify some nuggets of wisdom, things that you've taken away, things that have really shifted, things that, you know, you just really want other people to know from our work together, I would love to hear some ideas. Yeah, I think as I've thought about this, I think I'll start with like a couple practical parts because I think the old me would have been like, what's step one, two, and three to this process? So I'll start with that to lure you in and then I'll move on to the big, the big piece. So I would say, you know, like I said, I was marathon training before I started working with Lisa. And so I was on a super strict training regimen. I was running, running, running every single day you know, maybe doing a strength day, not as much as I should, but doing a lot of intensive, heavy exercise, hungry all the time, kind of let myself eat whatever I want because I was running so much and I was so hungry. And so when I started working with Lisa and the world was locked down and I didn't know what to do about exercise, we worked really specifically about how to transform your relationship with exercise. And so we dug really deep into why was exercising. Is it from love or is it from hate? And just asking myself that question over and over and over every time I thought 
I even thought about exercise, not even doing it, but just thinking like, oh, I should go for a run. And I was like, am I doing this because I think I'm bad or am I doing this because it'll help me clear my head and as a human, I need to exercise. And just posing that simple question every time I was doing this thing, which had me so confused. It was something that I had been so connected with for so many years and I was left with no direction. And so I said, okay, why am I doing this exercise? And then the second part of the exercise piece is we just started from zero. We said the baseline is zero. And if you do anything over zero minutes of exercise today, you great. That's our goal. And so just breaking it down to that really simple, really easy to attain goal was really transformative for me. Because at first I was like, come on, like I ran a marathon, like five minutes of walking is not my exercise for the day. And then I got to a point where I was like, well, I'm not doing anything. Five minutes a day is something. I should be doing five minutes a day. And then you're like, oh, I remember why I like going outside for a walk and going outside for a run. It makes me feel good. And then getting over the fact that I wasn't running the miles, which was so scary to me. It was like, oh, I was, a again, same thing with like the weight loss. It was, I was a winner and now I'm a failure. And so getting back on that path of like, okay, what does exercise look for me, look like for me today? doesn't matter what happened before. What does it look like today? My baseline is zero. I have to do something over zero. And then that my goal is met. And just thinking of it in those really small increments really, really helped me. So I would say that can be applied to anything else. And that's one really actionable piece of advice I got from our work together is just break it down, make it really simple, make sure you hit that goal. And then you can build from there and figure out if you're doing it from love or from hate, you know, are you doing it in safety or in love? I mean, in safety or in fear. And if the answer is fear, then maybe you shouldn't do it because you're probably not going to feel good after. And so those little pieces really help transform my relationship with exercise. And I'll say today, like, I know that when I'm feeling bad, when I feel, you know, sluggish or I feel foggy or I'm just frustrated, I'm like, I need to go outside. I need to go for a walk or run, or I need to do like 10 minutes of yoga. I need to move my body because I know what that does for me beyond a physical point of view in the mental capacity, what that exercise does for me. So breaking it down to those levels was really helpful. The second piece of actionable advice for my fellow action wanters out there is three meals a day. After having such a messed up relationship with food, my whole life and then be like, fuck diet culture. I'm throwing it all out the window. I'm done. I'm done with this. And then I'm like, but then I don't know what to do. And what Lisa and I talked about, it's like, all right, let's start with three meals a day. You can eat whatever you want for those three meals, but just make sure you have three meals a day because that's how you need to fuel your body. And that's, there's a reason we learned about that in elementary school. You need three meals a day. You can have snacks, but just make sure you get three meals. And that was the first step we did. And in that, you know, we would reflect on it every week and be like, so how did that go? What did you do? And some weeks I was really good. Some weeks I wasn't. And what I noticed is when I was having three meals a day, I felt a lot better mentally and physically than I did when I wasn't having three meals a day. And it didn't matter what was in those three meals. If it was mac and cheese, or if it was 
vegetables or whatever. Just the fact that I had three meals made me feel a lot better. So that was step one. Step two of that was like, okay, you're, you're having, you know, you should have your three meals. What can you do at each of those meals? Can you ask yourself at each of those meals? Is there anything more nutritious I can add to this? Is there anything else in my fridge? I can, I can add to this meal that will make it more nutritious for me. Oh, I'm, I want to have scrambled eggs. Oh, do you have some spinach you can throw in there and make it a, you know, give it a little bit more nutrients from the spinach. Just little questions, not is this healthy or is this not? Just, is there something I can add to what I already decided I was going to eat? And that again, another like mind blowing moment because it gave me the freedom to say, I know what I want to eat and I'm allowed to eat that thing. And that is so crazy for someone who has struggled with food for so long and has been on diets and has been on restriction and has been on binging. It's knowing that you know yourself better than anyone else in the world. And you say, mm. Mm, I want to eat that for lunch and I'm going to eat that for lunch and it's okay. And I don't feel anything other than I'm hungry and I wanted it and I ate it and now I'm good. And that was crazy to me, but just posing the question of like, is there anything I can add to this? Sometimes the answer was no, I don't have anything or no, I don't want anything with this. But just knowing that that question is there for me to pull from when I need it, this is me doing like fireworks hands for my brain for like the eighth time on this call. Um, That's really like the math of of your work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also thank you for sharing that because I am very much like you. Like I would be, if I were out there listening to this podcast, I'd be like out there with my pen and paper, you Mm -hmm. know, what are the one, two, three steps? And so I really appreciate the way that it's so, uh, you know, actionable. And there's one thing that is just, it's incredible to hear you say this because ultimately you're saying the same thing around food and exercise. That is what she's talking about is, And this is something like I teach in my curriculum and my group is that the way we have to have to, if we're doing this from a trauma informed mind body perspective, the way that we have to think about food is adding, adding food in, adding nutrients in, adding quote, good food in to the diet. That has to be the mentality rather than what should I eliminate or restrict or cut out or have less than because what we're doing when we think that way is we are communicating to our brain the energy of abundance rather than the energy of scarcity. So when we're in that scarcity mode and it's I can't eat that, I shouldn't eat that, scarcity, 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 it triggers fear. It just sends us into fear mode. And that's not our fault. It's just what happens in the brain. So if we're working with the brain and we start to think about adding nutrients, adding food, adding health, adding nourishment, adding, 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 now we're switching the physiology and the energy to abundance and abundance feels safe. So Emily, what you're talking about is that you have introduced and created safety in your relationship with food and eating and exercise by switching your mentality 
to one of abundance rather than scarcity. It's the same thing around all of it. And it's just incredible because it's so simple. It's not easy at all because it's so far from autopilot. Like it takes so much awareness and consciousness and work, honestly. But it's also very simple. Is if you find yourself in exercise thinking about how fast or strong you used to be, boom, you're automatically in a place of inadequacy today. So it's really just about knowing that the baseline is zero. The baseline is zero. And if you get in any movement, if you get in any nutrition, boom, you reach your goal. And it's, it's that a supervisor of mine once referred to this as giving yourself gold stars. It's like that, that um, approach of really working with yourself to say, you get a gold star. You did it. You made it. So that you're not always in a mental place of scarcity is going to do huge, huge things for the mind-body system moving forward in one piece. So thank you for voicing that and for making it so concrete. So well Yeah. Said. And I think, yeah, that kind of leads me into like be, the beyond the actionable things that I yeah. want to say, which like you just said, these concepts are really simple and you're like oh if I just switch my mindset like blah, 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 I'm gonna be cool but it takes a lot of work to get there and I think what I've realized in going through the process and going through the work and when I say the work I don't just mean like oh 10 weeks with Lisa meeting once a week it's doing the work when you're not meeting it's journaling it's asking yourself the tough questions I had so many conversations with myself of like am I doing this in fear or am I doing this in love? And I don't know what I'm doing. And you just go back, 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 back. But I think for me, at least going through all of that, you know, toughness before asking all those questions, just getting dirty with the work really got me to the point that I am today of like, oh, I understand it. It was so simple and I didn't get it. And now I do. And so when you finally understand how to implement this work and know your body and your mind and how they work together and how you as a person need to be stabilized and that's different for every person. This is just my experience, but it's so simple. And then one day it just, it just, the question happened and you didn't even think about it for more than a millisecond. And you're just having these realizations. And then one day you're sitting at your desk and you're like, I haven't thought about my body in two weeks. And you're like, whoa, that is crazy. That yeah. is crazy. Yeah. And it's not, you're not, spoiler alert, you're not going to lose weight. You, you might lose a little bit, but this isn't about weight loss. This isn't about, oh, I eat like paleo gluten-free. No, it's not about any of that. It's your life is going to be transformed in such small incremental ways that one day you wake up and you're like, I'm here. And I don't, I, I, I made it. And it's, it's not going to be like, all right, I finished the program and now I'm good. Like I talked about in the beginning, it's just through doing this, eventually it just becomes part of who you are. And that's why now I feel confident when I'm making food decisions, it doesn't, it really, truly 
99% of the time doesn't give me anxiety when I'm looking at a menu. It doesn't give me anxiety if I haven't had a salad in three days because I am not thinking about it in that way. And that is so, so freeing. And it's crazy that it's taken me 27 years in life to get to that point. And it's taken people even longer. You know, in our group with Lisa, there were women of all ages in that group. And we all have very similar experiences. And I think that's, you know, really interesting. And and almost sad to see that, like, we all have this experience with food that's taken over our lives and thinking about our bodies. And if you can really think about, you know, how to get out of that, if you're really committed to thinking about how I can make my life a more positive experience and not let this control every thought of my day, you can get there. You can, it's possible. And I really, 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 really didn't think that it would ever be possible. But like I said, I have these moments where like, I didn't think about my body in so long. I didn't go try on that bathing suit and want to cry and also not eat for a week. That's not the experience that I have anymore. And my body doesn't look that different. It's completely just a mindset change and understanding myself. And even before this call, I was saying, Elisa, like, you know, the other week I was feeling really like foggy and down. And the first thing I asked myself is, well, did you eat three meals a day? And did you, you know, meet your goal of, you, you know, get over your baseline of zero exercise? And I was like, hmm, I wasn't eating three meals a day. I wasn't getting over my baseline of zero. And if I was, I wasn't doing it out of love. And I know how to ask myself those questions and I know how to answer them honestly. And that's really, I think answering them honestly sucks in the beginning. It, it's really hard and I didn't even understand it. And now I get it and I know how to answer honestly with myself. And so, you know what? I meal prepped, but I didn't meal prep like I used to where I was like, I need to have mostly broccoli and grilled chicken and a little bit of brown rice. No, I was like, hmm, what sounds good to me this week? I went to the farmer's market and I said, hmm, what looks fresh and delicious at this farmer's market? And I got food and I made a meal and I'm always on the run, especially. So eating dinner specifically, something that we talked about a lot in my one-on-one is really hard for me because I usually go ride my horse after work. And so I'm rushing in and out and driving And just having a good meal prepared for me that I could bring and then eat, oh my God, my week was 10 times better than the week before because I was just doing these little things that I know now, I know with every fiber of my being that it will make me feel better. And it's not restricting, it's not losing weight, it's not fitting into those old pair of jeans that's going to make me feel better. It's just eating three meals a day. And it's so simple (laughs) and it's ridiculous when I say it out loud, because I'm like, God, why couldn't I have discovered this so long ago? It would have saved me so much time and sadness and anxiety, but it is a really hard process to get to. And I think, like I said before, for me, especially, I had to do a lot of other work before I was ready for this. I wasn't ready to go right into a mind body healing experience because I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't necessarily believe in it before. And in discovering other things about myself, it led me to this and I was really ready to accept it and really commit to doing the work 
so that it works. And so here I am today <laughs> telling Lisa about my three meals and preaching her work to my friends and anyone that, you know, might say a blip about this or that. And I feel really confident again in like my food decisions and I've discovered a new way of working out that doesn't consist of looking at my pace or my miles and I'm working on it every day. And I think that's the other thing too, is that this process never stops. It just becomes more of a habit in my experience. Like I said, the questions come up easier. The answers become more honest, but they still happen every single day. I'm keeping myself accountable for asking myself those questions. So that's kind of where I am now. Um, I will be honest, I didn't eat breakfast today, but I recognized that I didn't eat breakfast. I was like, Emily, why did you do that? So I had lunch and dinner. Um, and, you know, just again, being okay when I don't have a quote unquote perfect day and I don't meet all those things that I know are good for me. No. Again, tomorrow's another day. Um, and so I, I can't even like, every time I talk to Lisa, every time I see her, I'm like, oh, I'm so thankful for you because I really didn't think that this was possible. And it's not some big mountain moving, you know, whole world transformation, but it is at the same time, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. My body doesn't look any different. But my mind and my soul look a lot different. And um, that's really hard to tell other people about. Yeah. And so I'm really excited to share this because I love, I love this work so much. And I love Lisa so much. And I, I just can't say enough good things and I'm never going to shut up. <laughs> um, but I think it's hard for people to understand the weight of it because it's not a physical transformation. We're so used to a physical yeah. transformation. And the, the thing that I want to get out there really is you're going to feel it within you and it doesn't matter anything externally. Mm -hmm. And the physical body is those external voices and their approval. And, and all of a sudden those get quieter and quieter and some days they're louder, but they're for the most part, they're quiet and you know, all of those things. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I am. And, and I am just so happy to have gone through this and to keep going through it. And knowing that I have Lisa as a resource, have other people who have gone through this work who can speak to it and share their experiences and hear from all of them on this podcast, because I think the word needs to get out there more about this. And I think it's coming to life more and more, but, um, it's just, it's so special. And I'm, I'm so thankful for all of it. Emily, <laughs> uh, I hate that. I've never hugged you in person. It's so annoying. I know it's pretty it'll crazy. Happen. It'll happen, but I just, I'm speechless. I have no words, like literally none. I just, you, you, you embody it. You are it. You literally are it. Like this is what it is. And I think it's also I th one of probably the number one thing that I'm thinking while you're saying all this is that it's probably clear to the listeners at this point that there are some common themes 
among these interviews. And what you are pointing out is, again, not just radical acceptance, but radical responsibility. Because as you said, it's like, I've taught this and I've done work with plenty of people, but not everyone has the quote unquote, we'll call them results that you have had. And the thing that really separates you and a handful of other clients is that you really understood what I was saying and really took it in. You took your notes, you did your stuff, and then you applied it and you were very committed to showing up and doing the work like every single day. And you and I would have sessions a week apart and you would come in first five minutes of the session. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. This is what I have questions about. And this is what I want clarified. And it was like, it literally my, like, it's like a dream working with someone who <laughs> will sit there and be so receptive because it's so effective because with, mm -hmm. with a collaboration like that between you and I, um, you know, a few months later, you're, you're out the other end and you, yes, you know, you have bumps in the road. So do I, but you are living it. And the last thing that you're really reminding me of is something I hear that Nicole Sachs says all the time around healing chronic pain. And this was so big for me in my own IBS. When she says, when you start to feel better, believe it. Because mm. very often it's like, you know, we'll have that moment with the physical body where we wake up and like our shoulder pain isn't there or our back pain or whatever pain is not there. Just the same way that you're like, oh, I haven't thought about my body in two weeks. Like you just realize its absence very gradually, very slowly. You start to say, oh, my body doesn't hurt that. Oh, it's exactly the same way. And so I say that to my clients too, all the time, when you start to feel better, believe it, it's happening. It's just that it's not physical and it's not visible and it's not tangible and you can't touch it, but it's really happening and it's very real. So yes, it is real and you are just living it. And I'm so fucking proud of you. <laughs> Literally, you've come so far. You've come so far. You've done huge work, so much of it. And, and you're living it, you're living the, you know, the benefit, the outcome of it. So I thank you so, so, so much for being here. I have a feeling you'll be back. Ooh. <laughs> you'll be a double celebrity. Oh my um, God. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to share with the audience while you're here? I guess I would say and this sounds really cliche, like be open to doing the work. Um, I specifically was in a place where I was like, I know I don't want to diet and I will try anything for this. And this really just what I worked on with Lisa really resonated in me and be really honest with yourself when you're doing the work. And that sucks a lot of the time but once you are honest with yourself there's a lot of release at the end of that and that's where you're going to see the results so I would say yes. that's my advice huge thank you for saying that 
It's so true. It's everything. It's truth. We are mm-hmm. literally here to embody truth. So all of this is literally just getting us closer and closer to doing that. And you're right. Sometimes it sucks, but also you come out the other side mm-hmm. and that's what it's for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I love thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me. I love you too. I love this. Me too. Thank you for coming out of the cave. Oh, thank you <laughs> for leading me. As always, my friend, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you know from the deepest depths of my heart how much I love and appreciate you for being here. Having said all of that, I also just want to remind you, if you've made it this far in the episode, if all of this stuff is resonating with you, and if it feels like you're interested in dipping your toe into some of this work with me directly... I am currently enrolling for the next cohort of my group coaching program that will launch in May 2022. And if you're listening to this in real time and it's still March 2022, that means there is an early bird special where you can get $500 off of your coaching program. So if this, again, if this work is interesting to you, if you are curious about working with me directly, please go to the outofthecave.health website check out the work with me tab, fill that out, and I will reach out to you directly. We'll get on a call, talk about the details, and then we'll see if it's a good fit and go from there. So know that my door is always open to you. Know that my email inbox is always open to you. And all of those details will be in the show notes below. I love you so much. I hope you have the best week of your life. I will see you next time.